0: Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Praxis Pedagogy Podcast. That's right, it's another week, another podcast. How's your summer going? It's going good over here. Back to work. Well, I am. (laughs) I hear no sympathy, but then it's okay. It's all good. Anyway, we brought uh, Jesse Chalmers back because why not do two when you had an awesome episode with him to begin with. So we brought him back for another episode to talk about authentic assessments. And I made the very bold question of, well, if there's authentic assessments, that must mean that there are assessments that are not authentic. And we do a pretty good job of talking about that and a lot of other things. I think you're really going to enjoy this episode just like you enjoyed the other one. And if you haven't done it yet, please subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. And while you're doing that, give us a rating five stars would be the best because, well, we figure that uh, our guests are the best and and it just helps us get the word out there that this uh, podcast is alive and kicking, even though it's in the dead heat of summer. Anyway, uh, thank you for taking the time to listen. We really appreciate it. Two, one. Hey, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Praxis Pedagogy Podcast. We had such an exciting episode last time. We thought we'd bring back the awesome Jesse Chalmers from VIU. Thanks, Jesse, for joining us. And uh, we, we understand that you're in holidays right now. So uh, we'll have to send you some socks or something like that. Stay you. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for joining us again
1: well I'm technically not on holidays yet i'm, I'm oh. supposed to still be working today but i'm, I'm working remotely from from the campground okay. although it doesn't look like i'm in a campground right now no no <laughs> not really
0: not really that's no. good well, I, hope, no, uh, I had to come I, I,
1: into uh, a fellow coworker's house that's close to the campground so I could get the Wi-Fi
0: connection. <laughs> nice. That's, uh, when, that's creepy and convenient at the same time. It, right? it is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: We're nothing if not resourceful in our faculty.
0: Uh, that's good. Yeah, <laughs> you guys at VIU, just look out—you are the Navy SEALs in the HP area. That's good. That's good. Well, welcome. Hey, Chad, how you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Tim? i'm doing awesome uh you're a little why low don't you tell us mic. about
3: right is that better oh way better now, now you're joe rogan i bring the mic up to my face you did you make that coffee with your press or not your press your uh what is it called chemex yes yes i did
0: Ooh. yes i did and it's very smooth by the way <laughs> looks that way mm-hmm. <laughs> sally how we doing out there are you drinking some tea oh
2: yeah, I've got tea on the go. It's not coffee time until 10 o'clock. So, oh. tea until 10. <laughs> <It's> okay. <laughs>
0: Good deal. Good deal. Well, we thought we'd bring everybody back for uh, a roundup episode to talk about authentic assessments because, hey, you know, we had such fun last episode. We never got around to the authentic assessment part. So, this is the part where I pass it off to you, multiple awesome people, and say, Talk to me about authentic assessment. What What do you mean by authentic assessment? That must mean that there's assessments that are not authentic.
2: Yeah, good way to. Yes, it does. Who wants to take that one?
0: (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Jesse, talk to me a bit about authentic assessment. What What were you guys doing in your projects to uh, to make sure your assessments were were matching up with uh, real life and and matching up with the. uh, the outcomes that you guys were planning on and then what you talked about last week.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, are there not authentic assessments out there? And yeah, be careful of the language we use on that, but um, it, yeah, I, I would say there are ass- assessments out there that are not, not necessarily authentic. And um, and unfortunately in trades training, um, we have this, uh, this love connection with multiple choice exams. Um a love-hate relationship, let's call it that, and uh, and really, when you when you look at learning outcomes, and and especially in trades training, learning outcomes so often it's performing a task or or doing something, building, constructing, um, and when you look at a at a multiple choice question, that's not actually assessing somebody's ability to perform construct. You know, it's assessing the theory of it, but it's not necessarily ass- assessing the actual learning outcome so you know we've been uh, you know sally and i have been we, we did our little rogue project i think we talked about a rogue project last week <laughs> where we uh you know we we kind of handpicked a couple of our our instructors within our faculty and, and uh we wanted to help them develop authentic assessments that they would be able to use in this in this new alternate delivery world of of COVID. And, um, so yeah, really, I mean, the, the authentic assessments, it's how do you, how do you create an authentic scenario or situation that that would resemble what the student or the apprentice would, would actually be in if they were on the job site? Um, so, you know, for an example, we had, um, in our, our carpentry program, um, we had a, a couple of the instructors join our our little rogue project and so they had a a learning outcome that was apply exterior finish on a building and so again they had multiple choice exams they had little tiny mock projects that they were doing but it really felt like they were trying to take installing exterior finishes and, and putting it into a silo. And the reality is is when when students or apprentices are out there working in industry, um, there's all sorts of learning outcomes that need to come together during that. So when you're installing exterior finish, I mean, you have to plan for it. You have to know the theory behind the siding the project. You have to know safe work practices that you're going to use. Um, you're going to have to know the different tools, the, the materials. So there's all these different learning outcomes that really get, applied holistically. And so what they did is they came up with a, a realistic project. So they, they created a scenario and the scenario was, so a, a client has contacted you and they want uh one, one wall of their building resided with, and because there's different exterior finishes, what they did is they, they used you know, hardy plank siding, vinyl siding, um, cedar shake and so each student got a different scenario and they, you know so the customer they approached you um, they wanted the job done uh, they were very clear they had lots of money they wanted the job done to the best of your ability uh, they wanted it perfect so they wanted those real needy clients right but but they had money to back it up um you know so you're creating that real world scenario and then so the first thing that they had to do was they had to come up with a plan and So in the plan, uh, part of it was they had to to draft up a couple of different uh, exterior finish details. So in carpentry, when you put rain screen on uh, around a window or on the wall, there's lots of of little details, building code details that they need to know. So what they did is they had them draw a couple of those details, so plan it out ahead of time. So all of a sudden now they've brought in, the drafting component of it, which really, when you first start thinking about just exterior siding, you're not thinking about drawing, but they were able to pull that that learning outcome in there. Um, so the students had to draw a couple of the details. They had to calculate out the material. They had to identify all the building code requirements. They had to research the product and make sure that they knew all the manufacturer specifications and essentially build that that plan up front. Um, once they, they had the plan built, um, again, they had to, like say, second phase of it was they had to calculate all all the materials for it. Um, also, in the plan, we had them put together, you know, what tools they were going to be using, any safety requirements that they would have to to take into consideration. So, really, in the real world as a carpenter, these are all things that you should do before you get to a job site. You wouldn't want to just show up to a job site and say, oh, what are we doing today?" Um, so it's that whole planning. Like <laughs> <laughs> so it's just you know that you know all of that planning ahead of time, and then the unique thing about this authentic assessment as well, um, they could take it to that point in the online world. Um, but fortunately for them, they were able to bring students back for a few hours to do some practicals. So they were then able to take it and when the students came back to the um to the school they um and this actually connected you know as this project built out it got bigger and bigger Uh, it also tied in in that year of carpentry there was wall framing, so they had a they actually built a small shed uh, all of the students had framed it all up. So now they've actually got a, a structure there. And then each of the, the students, they paired up in groups of two, and they each got to install the siding and, and all the details on one of the walls. So it, again, it it, it really took that, um, instead of just installing some siding, it turned it into that real-world scenario is if you were a general contractor uh, uh, or a carpenter going to a site, what? You know, what would that whole process look like? And so we re- they basically recreated that whole process as part of the authentic assessment. And then the key there was really just, again, mapping it back to the, the learning outcome to make sure that there was a strong connection to uh, to the learning outcome. So, you know, they actually rewrote the learning outcome numerous times just to kind of keep tweaking it to make sure that it, there was strong alignment and it really the language was what they wanted it to be. And then uh, once they had done all of that work, I mean, kind of the final component of it was, was the rubric. Um, and they found that by the time they had done all of that work and clearly defining the learning outcome and coming up with this, this really authentic assessment and all the details of it, the rubric was easy to put together. Um, Mm -hmm. and so the rubric was able to assess all of these, you know, all the different components of this project. Like I say, there were so many different learning outcomes that were, they were able to, to embed into this one project instead of just installing exterior finish.
2: I think if I can hop in there, um, Jesse, like really what you've explained there is the complexity of competency. And one of the things in competency-based education is that we deconstruct competency. So it starts out with that occupational analysis, and then it gets broken into these measurable, teachable chunks. But in actual fact, we're you know (laughs) we're deconstructing competency. So it is no longer real-life competency. If you take these these tasks um skills and separate them out from how they exist out there in the real world then can we really call that competent because you know competence is is dependent on the situation where it's performed in we know that that skill is going to like when you spoke about the decisions you're making around you know, different siding and rain screening, tools are going to be different on the situation, but it's all of those judgments. And I think as you explained your way through there, you, you know, you can start to still see the complexity of this task coming together as in an authentic way. And I think if we reflect back on Tim's first question, you know, so we're talking about authentic assessment, but is there such thing as a, in authentic assessment, and when we think about it, you know what's being done other than authentic assessments. We know that multiple choice questions exist. Well, to take a multiple choice question, uh, you know, test and measure the kind of complexity that was performed throughout that whole whole authentic assessment. It just doesn't even measure. It doesn't even come close. It's, you know, as my thinking. It just gets completely um, reduced down to memorization, a certain level of application. I mean, you know, a well-written multiple choice exam can actually get you into that level of decision-making and judgment, but it's still removed from the situation where it exists. So you're not actually there with, you know, in that sort of hands, mind and body experience of making those judgments where they need to be made. They're still in isolation.
3: Yeah, We're in this fine balancing act, I think, with trades training, because I totally like I love the idea of the authentic assessments and I love the idea that we're, there's that hidden curriculum. So we're, we're trying to teach our students about collaboration, about problem solving, about planning. Like, this is the stuff that we should be teaching in trades training. But we're also unfortunately trying to prepare them for a red seal exam that is multiple choice so that it's like systemic from the top down right because we're everything all our assessments point towards that silly red seal exam at the end when it'd be nice if we could somehow turn that red seal exam into a more of an authentic assessment but i don't know what to do with that right
2: well that's interesting because hairstylists actually did in 2016 They brought in in BC um, the Red Seal Practical Exam, which is now a seven and a half hour practical exam. And it is the most authentic exam you could see. The tasks that need to be performed are uh, a a complex task. They're not on real life models, but one of the great things is, of course, in hairstyling is that you do have mannequins. And so in actual fact, that... uh, you. It gives everybody the same sort of canvas to start on, which so I think it's a fairer playing field. But the complexity of what you're being asked to do in those situations really does mirror real life. And I think hairstylist is one. I know that culinary have a similar Um, project as well at the end of a practical component. And I think one of the barriers is like you say, Chad, you know, we've got these red seal multiple choice exams, but one of the barriers is that this um, understanding of theory and practical as being two separate entities. And of course they can't exist without each other. And yet we do this odd thing where at the end of an apprenticeship, you know we measure your knowledge and we say, oh, well, this is your theory exam. And so even the fact that we try and create an exam that is a multiple choice exam that just is supposed to capture the theory, and then i know when there's ter- verbs such as apply used in those exams then it allows them to say oh no we're actually talking about application as well but i think that's you know for me that's problematic
0: there's also the issue too that some some trades have practical ex- uh, components within their uh, outlines that they're doing so i look at plumbing for instance and there's the, depending on the level that you're in there's there's about 20 to 30 percent of of the actual levels outline that's contained in a practical and so i know some would say well there's your authentic assessment because we would take the theory and we go to the shop or we go out to the yard and we would build this thing or construct this thing or put this system together and then that that becomes the authentic assessment but it's somehow it, it doesn't seem like it's connecting in with what jesse you've been saying in the sense of of bringing everything together and and when you're talking about that, it almost reminds me of this idea of a capstone project, where you've taken everything that you've learned and you apply it in this in this one this this one practice, right? And it, can you explain to me how we might uh, build on that or 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 uh, bring in this idea of authentic assessments even into the theory components of what we do, and not look at it as just a complete capstone?
1: Um, Yeah, I mean, it, it, as you're developing this, it's amazing how they, you know, they these authentic assessments with each of the groups that we started with, they they did start turning into these capstones. They they realized, oh yeah, we could include this and we could have that, and then yeah, this, and then yeah, they did become these these capstone, um, and uh, and again, I think depending on on how you. Develop these these authentic assessments, you know, and, and the approach on on the ones that we did, you know, in this road project, because again we're in this this alternate delivery world of COVID, um, there was still this focus of okay, how do we do some of the theory online, and how can we still assess in an online world? So. Um, and to kind of to chad's point as well we, we do have this we, we know that the students at the end of the day are going to have to either write an ita level exam or at the end of it write the, the red seal uh, multiple choice exam so it's there's still opportunities to you know as you're working towards that capstone there's still opportunities to to have them go through those quizzes and and tests and, and assessments that start building their knowledge up to that but i i think you know the deeper understanding that students have to have when they apply all of this in a capstone or an authentic project, um, it, it really is summarizing all and everything that they know. Um, because we know that, that safety doesn't happen in isolation. Use of tools doesn't happen in, in its own little silo and materials, like all of that does have to come together. And so it's, and when you think about and again, Sally's the, the doctor in the room here, so I, I can never use the language that, that she uses quite as well. <laughs> uh, but, uh, <laughs> but really, with, with multiple choice questions, you're not necessarily... The, the level of learning that you're testing is fairly low. Um, there's there's a lot of memorization that goes into that and, and recall. and um, it, It's not that... In an authentic assessment, you, you truly are assessing... students overall understanding of of so much more and it's that that deeper understanding of it and I think you know to to Chad's point as well I mean we know we got to prepare them for that multiple choice exam but I think if if students have this deeper understanding and the ability of if we actually pull it all together in that capstone or that authentic assessment um, I think the multiple choice exams would be quite easy for them yeah you know, the the level of of understanding and that they've gained through through the whole process um, yeah it, to me i w- i would expect the multiple multiple choice exams to to be quite easy for them that's the theory anyways <laughs>
0: <laughs> well speaking of theory that's a good segue so sally when we're talking about authentic assessments you're really talking about Competency versus mastery. Are you? Are we not?
2: Yeah, and I think you know also that definition of competency. You know, competency-based education. I think, what does it mean to be competent? And when we when we look at it in education, we see that um, the way it's structured is to, as Jesse just mentioned, about you know, safety doesn't happen in isolation selection of tools and their uses doesn't happen in isolation. And yet when we look at those exams, we know that we get six questions on safety and six questions on tools and identification. So it does use them in isolation, you know, and then when you successfully pass that exam, then you're deemed as competent. But I think we need to look at that gap between what we're assessing as, you know, the benchmark, the red seal exam, and in actual fact, somebody that is competent out there in industry. And so, you know, theory cannot live in isolation of practice and practice without. I mean, there are there are roles out there in the workforce where you don't need to have theoretical understandings. Like I'm just thinking of um, you know, traditional apprenticeship, where you would start in that community of practitioners, and say on the job site you go in as the labourer. You don't need to have a theoretical understanding; you can just perform those those tasks that you're asked to do. The same as in hairstylist or in baking as well as well those kind of stuff. But when you want to actually develop what we would say was competent in our trades, then theory and practice live together. And so I think For it comes back to that whole piece again of, you know, um, occupancy, uh, occupancy occupational analysis does a really good job. So we know what is deemed, you know, what are considered the complexity of competency within each trade. We know what those, the knowledge base is. And then we have these program outlines, which, you know, say, okay, this is what needs to be taught, covered and understood in this trade. But it's the curriculum development piece that has been absent. So as Jesse's talking about this and referencing, you know, learning outcomes, so defining those learning outcomes, so not just taking them from the program outline and just, you know, having them like a checkbox. Once we start developing curriculum, we're talking about The outcome of the program, so not what you do in the program, but what you can do as a result of the program. And so we're assessing when you develop a capstone or an authentic assessment, you're assessing actually the, you know, the outcome of the program as such, what the learner can now do independently having been through the program. So I'm not really sure that that answered your question, but the point that I'm, <laughs> the point that I'm going for here is that this bit the bit to me that is really missing is the curriculum development. Yeah recognizing trades educators as you know curriculum developers, and that seems to be that seems to be the bit that you know, COVID-19 has brought to the forefront when Jesse mentioned there about that authentic assessment, that when you look at it, you'll see that I think about 70% of that project can be taught in the online environment. And there was just about 30% of it. And yet you could never look at it and say it was deconstructed all the way through. It very much is a real life, you know, setting, um, situation problem or yeah. Yeah. But it lends itself to both environments, but COVID-19 was definitely the trigger that led to that, that opportunity.
0: Yeah. It's interesting that you say that because, um, our, our program's AGAS training does a really good job of that blended model, where a lot of these guys, especially the remote guys um, who are outside the lower mainland, that for six and a half months, it's it's all online, and and we can we can like or not like the asynchronous nature of it, or, or sorry, the synchronous nature of it. Um, but what I'm what I'm what I'm visioning here is, as you guys are laying this out is that's exactly what these these people are doing is they're out they're out there in their homes after work uh, they're going through the material online there's a lecture there's a whole bunch of work and all that stuff then they come to our shop for two weeks and for one of those weeks for five days straight a group of them four to six of them will fire a, a boiler. And, and they're talking exactly, or not talking, they're doing exactly what you're talking about, Jesse and Sally, where they're bringing in code requirements. They're bringing in environmental concerns, like in, in the shop area, like they have to be aware of what all the safety that goes along with it. They have to, and essentially what we do is we unlock the, the boiler for them, make sure everything's safe, and we're monitoring them, but they're the ones going from step one to step 100 to get that boiler to fire. And then when they get it fired, we come in and we tweak a little thing and go, okay, so now what happens if we cause this and, and this problem shows up, how are you going to deal with that? And they do it almost as a group. And which, which, which I think is a really good mimic of what happens in the, in the, in the world. I won't call it the real world because what they're doing is absolutely real. And, and um, and when you're firing a boiler in a building that I don't think you can get uh, something that's any more safety conscious than that. But, Um, so it's very much similar to what they would do out in the world. And yet I'm, 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 I'm seeing that when they, when they finish that and they go and write their certification exam at the gas safety authority, it's a multiple, it's a hundred question, multiple choice exam. And it's, and more often than not, uh, we're hearing the students say, you know what, doing that practical really helped me prepare for the exam, which fleshes out what you just said, Jesse, about they get to a multiple choice after they've done all this authentic assessment. And it's almost. Well, I wouldn't say it's easy peasy because that agas exam is brutal, but um, it's uh, it's it's very much uh, just a straightforward exam, and and they'll they'll grind through it, and it's easier than it was in the past. So that that's what I keep thinking about when I hear all this. But Chad, I want to I want to hear your point of view on this because I said I can see a lot of group work happening in this authentic assessment, both on the faculty side and the student side, and the the student side. I mean, you, you you've been you've been a podder for a long time, right? Where you put your students in pods and you have them work together and they, they explore and, and they, they find and, and they work on stuff together. And then there's also the faculty side. And I know you've had some experience with this too, where you bring faculty members together as a group to build this stuff out so that it's not done in isolation. Can you talk to us a little bit about that in your experience?
3: Well, I think, that it gets back to what I was saying earlier about that whole hidden curriculum about the collaboration, problem solving, digital skills. Like, I understand when I looked at my learning outcomes a couple of years ago, when I first started kind of getting into the open educational movement and open pedagogy and trying to co create with students, I noticed a lot of like what Jesse said was, you know, like install receptacle or, you know, install fluorescent light. But I started to realize that there's so much more behind that. And so I tried to make these again, authentic environments where the students would be working together and learning how to collaborate. So I would, just as a little recap, I'd put them into groups of four. And so every week they would have a new problem or a new project that they would have to work on. So often it would be building their own textbook for that topic. And so I would give them a Google slide deck with just a bunch of headings and they would have to fill in the blanks and then build it from there. Um, But again, keeping them involved in the conversation. So that's another thing that I found really important was having discussions with the students as to why I was doing it this way and why, you know, it's great that you can memorize things, but in this day and age, you don't really need to memorize things because you've got access to Google in your pocket, right? So, but which is, it is still important to memorize things, but it's also important to learn how to look things up properly. So then we started talking a lot about digital literacy and that sort of. Got interesting into to conversations um, then one thing I started playing around with too was like group group quizzes and group exams, and so having them take these exams, these multiple choice exams that I built or problem based exams I built and have them work on them together and so make the, the questions a little more difficult. So they would oh, have wait, to collaborate.
0: Wait, wait. Hold on. Hold on. I know that there's faculty. You had them work on an exam together. Yeah.
3: <laughs> oh. and my name, my name oh, right now dude, is John Smith. Know, Don't pass. This. <laughs> amazing, <Yeah>. right? <laughs> oh. Chad
2: is not in the house. Chad Flynn never saw. Yeah. Him. He, he never, never this left. is somebody else that's got the same
3: voice. Oh. So this <laughs> It was amazing though. I thought that it was going to be, I thought I would just try it out and I thought it was going to be one of those experiments that would go awry, but it didn't, they would all get involved. They would all talk. You would think that the students that would, they would get the bright ones to blast through them or they would chunk them out. Like I, I really encouraged them not to do this where I say, okay, I don't want you guys to take the first, you take 10, you take 10, you take 10, you take 10 right. and then we'll share our answers. So I just made sure that I had a teaching presence there. So they knew that I was walking around the class. They knew that I was kind of watching, even though I was just kind of off to in the distance there and the conversations they would have and the discussions they would have and the sharing and the teaching, the learning. And then I would survey them at the end of the, the week. And they said that often they found that the most time, most learning they had was during those exams. And lo and behold, he started f- figuring out that assessments, you can actually learn from assessments who knew, what? <laughs> right? It was, we weren't always, we're not always punishing our students. We can actually use them as a learning aid. Let's rewind that a second here without, without and I'll put, I'll put in some fancy
0: fancy <laughs> post post edit kind of w- rewind that a second. You said,
3: what? <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> what did you just say? We can use assessments for learning, not just for assessing. Okay. Full stop. Full stop. You just said that it, we can learn through assessment. That's I believe that's what Mike Smith said. Yes.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah we'll oh, second that okay. yeah
3: chad Wait, Flynn play. totally disagrees with that and thinks yeah. should yeah, that's, <laughs> right.
0: that's right it's like a twitter handle views Use my own, views yeah. My own. <laughs> yeah just
2: speaking for a friend that's all just yeah, speaking that's for right
0: it's right asking for a friend what, what? <laughs> okay uh, press play so we can learn from assessments go
3: yeah and they did and they they found that those are and i as an instructor too sitting and watching it would see these enriched conversations having and these light bulb moments going off as they all started sharing because they, they had skin in the game, right? Like there's some, it's, this was important. It's not just some stupid throwaway project that they're just doing to get their participation mark. This is their exam. So then they've got, they've got to figure this out. And so, and they know that I'm quote unquote, has a presence there. So it's not like they can just get Johnny Smart's pants there to to do it and then copy off of it. It never happened. Like I never saw any of them, any of them trying to copy answers off the other ones, they were all involved in conversations and it wasn't just this, those specific groups because every unit I would switch the groups up. So they weren't stuck with the same four people for the whole six months, every week or two, they would be with another group of people. So they would learn how to work within other contexts and with other personalities and right. you'd get pushback. And so you'd start seeing like debates happen or almost fights happening. So then <laughs> I would have to mitigate that sort of thing. <laughs> but that's, isn't that what it's like in real and I know you hate the term, Tim, but in real life, right? Like yeah. when they're out in industry. So that's the kind of things that we're, we're getting at. So yeah, yeah they, they learned how to do parallel circuits and combination circuits and voltage dividers. But I think the more valuable learning was they learned how to work with people they wouldn't normally work with and right. get be, start relationships with people that they wouldn't necessarily be friends with and learn how to, learn, and learn how to teach. Because the best way to learn something is to teach it. And so th- when they start sharing their ideas and stuff, that, that makes a huge, huge difference to them.
2: I'm going to take a stab there and and Chad and say that I think that, you know, you've created authentic scenarios within your classroom. You know, this is, this is all part of this understanding where the you're not talking about evaluation. You're talking about mm-hmm. assessment as a learning tool. And, and I'm sort of um, thinking here that at the core of there are some really good case studies I and mean, we whether we want to call it problem-based learning or however we want to frame it that you're providing in-depth problems that require four minds to actually figure it out and I think that is you know that that is that bringing that whole real-life um, situation scenarios into the classroom isn't it I mean mm-hmm. if you give students um, if you give students a very uh, straightforward multiple choice exam that doesn't have that kind of complexity embedded into it and you have four people work on it, you're just going to get a test back that has a hundred percent correct. Nobody has learned anything whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, what you haven't really spoken about is the kind of problems that you're giving the students or, like you said, you know, you're know, you giving them the Google slide deck and having them provide the information. I mean, that in itself, that's huge. And I think that to actually work as a team to provide the answers to just putting the heading in there, that is the kind of knowledge and the judgments that they need to make when they're in the workforce, and and like Jesse mentioned earlier, if you're if this is what um, learning looks like, whether we call it assessment, it's embedded in in learning, if that's what it looks like in your classroom, when it comes to a multiple choice exam, you're used to making those decisions and the judgments, and and so you it's like you've exceeded that. So although mm-hmm. we do need to still do a little bit of you know small amount of those exams, just so students get used to how poorly written they are, so that they don't get <laughs> caught out <laughs> in them. I mean they need to practice because. Let's be honest, we've all had students that have done incredibly well in multiple choice exams. Then you put them into what, uh, you know, the complexity of bringing together theory and practice and they just don't, they can't do that. They Mm -hmm. can succeed in the multiple choice exam. So, you know, what you're doing um, goes far beyond that.
3: Well, it's just, and one of the things that kind of hit me and made me start to work towards this direction, and first off, I just want to say your, your point where you said, unless a multiple choice exam is written well, I, in my 12 years of teaching, I don't know if I've ever come across a, a multiple choice exam that's been written well, um, but I noticed that I, I would get students, so we would do the theory, and then we'd get to the shop in our practical time, and then these students that would get like 90s and 100s sometimes, and then they hit the shop and would kind of bomb. And, mm-hmm. then I, and then I started, I had a student and what really triggered it for me was I had a student actually drop out of the course because of it and just like hated the hands-on stuff. I was like, what can we do to stop this? Like they need to, before they get to the practicals, we need to have them working in teams and collaborating and problem solving and troubleshooting and all that instead of just going theory, 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 which is what they're used to all through high school and university if they went that way. And then suddenly bam, practical kind of, Integrating it, like what Jesse was talking earlier, about how we want to, have, it's all in, right? It's all and, it's not just theory over here, practical over here, and, you know, the, never the two shall meet. Yeah, But, but that, we've got to integrate it all. That's a Dare good I
2: say that this, I think that this system as it is, um, the structure of the system is, does come back to that concern where we consider the separate, we see the mind and the body or the hands and mm-hmm. the mind as a binary, it comes back to that understanding, which, you know, the dualism and toe. Plato
3: and yeah. Yes, <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, comes back to that <laughs> way of thinking. And I mean, Mike Rose writes a lot about this that yeah. this is, a, you know, a trades um, training is shaped by that understanding that what the hands do is sort of separate from the, you know, the mind. It gets missed that the level of you know, cognitive processing that's taking place before you do anything with your hands. I mean, it. and I think when that understanding is not evident all the way through our, our trades training, I think that would, if we were to go back and start it with that different, you know, turning the epistemological tables, as Mike Rose would say, it would look very different and i think it would look as chad has mentioned to well, the tim as well you you know what you explained with that trade that i know nothing about to do with boilers but i mean i think all three of you have given really strong examples of what that would, would look like if we if we move away from separating theory from practice yeah
1: yeah there's yeah. Well, they, they, I mean, there's just so much going on in this conversation and I'm trying to keep it all in. <laughs> I, just, I, want, I got to talk about that. And I want to talk about this. And yeah. Then. You go, um, you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah I mean, yeah, Chad, I mean, I, I, I love your, your comment back. Well, sorry, Mike Smith. I loved your comment about, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. about, <laughs> yeah. about ass- assessments that, that, that there's an opportunity to, to learn through them. And really when you think about it, you know, we're in the in the world of education. We're educators, and 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 really, we're we're trying to help map out that journey for the students and support them on that journey and allow them to, to kind of navigate that journey as much as they can on their own. Um, and and when you think about so many of, and again, let's not call them not 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 authentic assessments, but <laughs> but there's those multiple choice tests, they're they're not they're not part of the educational journey. They are a snapshot at a point in time of what somebody has been able to memorize. Um, and and there is no learning that, that can go on. Oh, there is a a little bit that can go on there. Um, but, but sorry, my computer's doing some funny things on me. That's okay. (laughs) Technology. Um, but yeah, so it's, again, as an educator, you want to take advantage of every opportunity you have, to help the students travel that journey and when you know that that multiple choice test isn't really a a valuable tool in in helping you achieve that why spend a whole lot of time doing it right why not focus on some of these other things um and you know again the i loved kind of the, the the pod approach that you were taking there chad so even even though it was you were still having them do multiple choice uh tests when you think about on the job site um you always have your coworkers to bounce ideas off of. You're yeah, you're never you're never stuck by yourself on the job yeah, site, or very rarely. Most of the time, there is always somebody there to problem solve with. So again, if we're just asking them to write a multiple choice test, which so many students absolutely fear and dread, you know, they they don't sleep the night before, they sweat through the exam and, and you know they know the material, yet they bomb the, the exam. So again, it's just not a, a, a true assessment of of their knowledge of the learning outcome. Um, okay. So there's that piece that I wanted to talk about.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Jesse's kind of got the soapbox this morning, is not he?
1: You go, go.
3: you go,
2: brother. It's
1: all good. Well, <laughs> Sally, you, you, you were saying, let's just go for it. Right. So, so here it is. This is
2: the
1: transition without even identifying that we've transitioned. Um, no. And I, I, I think, a lot of those other components that you were talking about as well, Chad, in, in your process, it's that collaboration, that team building, that mm-hmm. problem solving, those, those, those soft skills. I think one of the keys is, I think we've done that a lot over all of our, our roles as, as instructors and facilitators over the years, but I don't think what a lot of instructors, they, they don't necessarily take the time to identify to the learners that that is actually happening. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's the key there is, is how do you, um, and quite often it can be done either you know verbally as you're walking around the room, you can start making sure that they're aware of that or, in you know, a marking rubric for the authentic assessments. As long as you're, you're making it clear as to all of those different components that, that they, and those learning outcomes that the students are learning and building towards and the competencies that they're gaining um, by identifying it, all of a sudden, the student starts taking a little bit more ownership of it. Oh, okay, well, I didn't realize I was building you know, collaboration skills or communication skills or digital, digital pedagogy. So somehow, some way, you know, in your assessments or your teaching or your, your activity or whatever it is, if, you, if we can start identifying that to the students more, um, I think they'll, they'll take a lot more ownership of it as well.
3: I cannot agree more. In fact, as an example, I started a foundation course for electrical two weeks ago and because I know, and this is something I was going to do face to face anyways, but because I know I get them to do a lot of research projects and they, they have to go online and look things up. And I started seeing from examples in the past, these students have absolutely zero ability to search anything. They know how to use social media really well, but they don't know how to look things up. And there's always the assumption that Wikipedia is evil. So they would never look, they, Anyways, goes into whole discussions about that. So I've built a component into my course now called D- digital citizenship. And so it's eight weeks. So eight week discussion. So on a Friday, is like today online, they're going to jump in. They're going to watch a couple of videos on digital citizenship. And like today it was about care and concern. Then they're going to have a discussion about it in, the, in a discussion forum. So I did that last week. I talked about it and I talked about why this is important. But then a couple of them in their discussion posts mention, I don't know why I have to do this. I took this course for electrical. I did not take this course to learn how to look things up online. And so then again, this week, I think to your, your point, I think we have to keep having these conversations with them and keep pushing and showing why these things are important. So then I had another discussion with them. Like this is all going towards something like this digital citizenship is important because not only in courses, but when you're out in the field, you're going to have to look things up. You're going to have to look at manufacturer specs and where are you going to go to have these discussions and, Forums and stuff like that, that trades people use. So, mm-hmm. I guess back to what you were saying, like we just have to walk around, we have to have these engagements with them. We don't just talk at them, we need to talk with our students more often. And I think now is such a perfect opportunity to do so.
0: Yeah, and and that's such an important point, too. I'm going to jump in here, Sally, because I haven't spoken last <laughs> six <laughs> minutes. I'll, I'll, I'll so. hold my breath. Yeah. Hold <laughs> <it. Ready?
2: laughs>
0: okay. Um, that's such an important point because I, I get that, too. And, and, I mean, I'm not teaching a trades course right now, but I'm still getting that in, in a business course. It's like, so how does this fit? And so, and I was getting that even in a face-to-face class. So what I've really made sure of in my in my online classes or my blended models was that at the beginning of each section, I would actually give them the learning outcome that this ties to. So so at the very, the very beginning, I, I would say something to the effect of, you may be wondering why we're doing this. and And so let me tell you why. And, and I'll do a short video or I'll just write it out. This this is how it connects. And then boom into the assignment. You know what? It, it just took everything away. The, once, once they understood how it connected, now I couldn't, I, like you have found out, I couldn't ju- just do it once. I had to come back to it again and again and remind them, hey, listen, there's there's a method to the madness here. Just trust the process a bit. You'll see how it fits together. But isn't it interesting, Chad, that you had one of your apprentices go, I came here to learn electrical, not not to learn how to look things up. Well, that's awesome until you get out into the field. And like you said, now I gotta look up some some dry, you know, documentation on you know how this LED is supposed to be wired in. I'm just I'm you can tell I'm way out of my element now. But <laughs> <laughs> but it isn't that so true, right? Because if yeah. if they need to find out information, where are they gonna go? They're gonna go to their friends, they're gonna go to their their colleagues, right? And then they're gonna go to the online world. And if they don't know what they're looking for. Um, they're soon gonna figure out that, oh what do, what do you mean? There's that the internet's not all true? It's not all yeah. true, right? I have to be critical when I think about that. Anyway, I'll get off the box. Ready? Go, Sally.
2: Okay, okay. <laughs> so right you know, what you're describing, what Chad's describing, what is this is the piece where we this is the curriculum. This is the student journey. So like Chad, you you know, you've embedded within your electrical foundation program this communication. And you're not just assessing communication skills in a multiple choice test, which we know we could all do and we know has been done in the past, but you've actually embedded it into your program. And so this is a like a, a you know. A wonderful example of where as um, a trades educator, you've taken the program outline, but now you've built curriculum. And so you're looking at that, you're looking at the outcomes in industry in order for these apprentices to be successful. I mean, their digital literacy and their communication skills are going to be what makes the difference between success or not. not. Not that Red Seal exam in isolation, it is this whole package which comes back to that whole thing of, you know, the exam that Jesse, not the exam, the assessment that Jesse was explaining. The complexity of competency and, and it, it requires communication. It requires the ability of that, you know, digital literacy in the 21st century. So all of these things are not in the program outlines. They're, they, you know, or they might just be just headings or a checklist or whatever. But that curriculum that you've developed around that I think that's the piece that's surprising students and when they get that pushback because they've been trained by a system like the K to 12 trained them to memorize and recall and, you know, um, throughout their 12 years. And I know there's higher levels of learning in there, but I think it surprises our students right now. They're in that pivotal stage where they come in and, and they're used to sitting back and listening and they're used to taking multiple choice tests that they can then achieve. But nobody's actually asked them, provided them with these opportunities where they can think out loud like you're doing in your discussions, Chad you know, providing all of these opportunities for the student voice and for them to, you know, think collaboratively. Hmm.
1: I think that the exciting part is, is the K-12 to system, you know, they have transitioned to a, a newer model. And I think it, it's going to still be a few years until we we start seeing students that have been through, um you know, the, the new curriculum design in, in the K-12 system, somebody that's been through those, those 12 full years. But I know I, my daughter's 16, and, and uh, you know, during this COVID time, I got to spend a lot of time kind of with her and, and some of the, the assignments and, and projects and, and work that they were doing. And in the K-12 system, they are starting to to allow the students to have that voice and and own their own learning and make those decisions so to me that it is it's exciting to know that that's happening um, because us in post-secondary those are the students of the future for us so hopefully they're going to be better prepared for this this world that that we all (laughs) we all want to be playing in (laughs) this this authentic assessment and all these graduate attributes that the students have and you know again that that bigger picture um, you yeah, know, and as I was thinking, as you were talking, we're all, we're all trades in the room here as well. So we all, we all worked in industry, you know, even though it was a long time ago, um, for me, I, I don't have any calluses left on my hands, but, uh, <laughs> I, know, I, know, I know I could, I could form them if I, if, if I had to, um, but you, you think back to your time in industry, and there was always, I mean, how many times did you work with that person that was a very skilled trade person, but they would never last very long on the job site because they didn't yeah. have all of those other, you know, those graduate attributes of those personal skills to be able to communicate and work with others. So, so to be successful in industry, those are those are skills that you have to have to be successful. Yes. It's oh, cool. not just the trade competency; it's the whole yeah. package that needs to be put together. So, as educators, again, it's it's our opportunity to to not just teach the the trade competency in isolation. try to you know, and trying to teach it in that that realistic, holistic world that they're going to be entering into.
0: And that's why they call it essential skills too, right? Like there, there's a whole list of them and, and we look at that list and go, that's so rudimentary. Like, okay, yeah, I get it. They got to have some numeracy. They got to have, they got to be able to read documents. That's, that's great. But we fail to understand how integral those things are, not just for the the one person interfacing with their, with their craft, but it's, it's one person integrating with a crew. It's one person integrating with a site supervisor or a general supervisor, or if you're, if you're in a, in a specialized context, you know, you're interacting with clients and, and and bringing together all these different components to it. So, yeah. Awesome. Can, can we talk a little bit about the sequencing part of what you did to get to authentic assessments just so that our listeners can walk away with, ah, maybe I can do this or I can start here. Can, can, can you walk us through how you sequenced this together and, and building the authentic assessment?
1: Yeah, and I think it again it goes back to the, the backwards mapping of curriculum design so it's you know the the first step is always you, you got to understand what the learning outcome and that that needs to be clearly defined um, not only for you as as the as the instructor the educator but also for the student so it really it, you need to start with where is the end of the journey when the students leave this course what will they be able to do um, so you have to have that clear understanding and then it's okay well, how would they be able to, to prove out to me that they and to themselves that they've been able to meet that learning outcome? So how are we, how are we going to assess that? Um, and then you know, from that, then it's okay, well what journey do we need them to travel on to be able to be successful there? So what, what activities are we going to have them do? So really it's the, it's the learning outcome, um which drives the the assessment but then there has to be that continual mapping back and forth to make sure that they do align well and once you have those clearly identified then you can start thinking about okay what am i actually going to do with the students what activities are are we going to do to lead them to to that the end of the journey well not really the end of the journey a stage of the journey oh,
2: yeah <laughs> it, and jesse i think that one of the pieces as well that we really haven't had time to talk about is the rubrics. And I know you mentioned it earlier, but developing uh, you know, a really <laughs> a well-developed rubric allows the educator as well to really understand every sort of element of this, of what they're assessing. And that was when with the team that we worked with in the road project that's when they would start saying oh there's safety in here as well oh right there's tool use in here as well and then they would go back to their learning outcome and put you know safety in there safely apply and and um, selection of tools would appear in there as well but when you actually start building out that rubric and looking at what competency looks like, what excellence looks like, and what isn't acceptable. And you break it down so it's a criterion-based rubric to the extent that everybody knows what you're looking for. And and this comes in, if you've got a communication element in there as well, then you're actually naming what is communication, what are you looking for in there. So I think then when you have a rubric like that, the piece that you're asking about, Tim, the sequencing, how do we get somebody to that point where they're successful in that assessment? Then we're looking at our building blocks. And so when we look at the building blocks, this is what Chad spoke about that, um, you know, assessments being learning tools as well. So we provide all of these little mini authentic assessments along the way that are bringing together these competences like providing these opportunities and so it's a whole series of those that then brings the student to the place where they're like yeah they're prepared they're prepared for this assessment because you've provided them all of these you know these building blocks along the way and very much with that whole deliberation all the way through that every time you're actually you know, raising the level, like this is now you've got, you've got reached this. Okay. And so now we're going here. It's always got to be that zone above what they can do independently, always looking at what they, you know, I'm going to say his name, don't you? You You (laughs) Yeah, Lev, we had to say Lev's name. Yeah. Um, But yeah. So that sequencing applies, I think, at all levels all the way Mm. through silence
0: oh well, i was just gonna say did you hear that <laughs>
2: silence <laughs>
0: mic drop this is where chad comes in because he can't handle the silence
2: can i say one thing just sure. one thing as if it's one thing you know what jesse just mentioned about the k-12 to system and the changes in there so we we were very fortunate at viu that um we actually had quite a lot of workshops where um the uh, the director of the Teaching and Learning Centre at that time, Liesl Canak, brought in about fifty high school educators, and they would be approximately fifty post-secondary um, educators there. And we collaborated. I think we had four wow. major events like that, and we got to understand where they were coming from, what their challenges were with this shift in, you know, major shift, paradigm shift, really in the new K to twelve system, and so. I think through those collaborations, we started to see, if we don't start making changes now, we're going to have students coming into our classroom that do want to do what Chad spoke about. They want to work in pods. They're not going to be recipients of knowledge. They're going to be ready for this. So if we don't start working on this whole new paradigm of trades, Education and training. Now we're going to have a real. I think there's going to be a huge tension, like two or three years down the road, when we start to see those graduates come out of the new K to twelve
0: curriculum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I wonder how much COVID's going to have an effect on that too, right? Where we're we're getting our students to to work in groups and and be online together. I wonder how that's going to influence what we do. If and when and how it looks like when we get back to a face-to-face environment,
2: mm-hmm. yeah, exciting opportunities. I think. I Very wonder so. whether the trades programs will ever look the same as they did before. I no, think there's they
3: won't. No, <coughs> they're gonna want to though. I think they're. Can we- Are we in our go-to board section? Not yet. <laughs>
1: yeah, I think.
0: Let, let, let me take I this moment take a- to
3: thank <laughs> let me take this moment to thank jesse for being on
0: the show because we're 57 minutes in and uh you know we want to we want to honor that so jesse you're more than welcome to stick around if you want if you want to bow out and, and say good night and, and head back to your uh remote working <laughs> slash vacation destination mobile. mobile um yeah then uh, you feel free to do that thanks so much for taking the time to be with us jesse really appreciate it and um it's been a pleasure
1: yeah well thanks for the thanks for the invite again it's uh, like i say it's it's the conversations i, I love them um you know we're, we're able to, to you know come out of the closet here and,
2: and, and <laughs> truly
1: show our love <laughs> of pedagogy right yeah that's <laughs> right yeah no, it, it is. It, it's, uh, you know, every time you have these conversations, it, it does just kind of open your mind and you learn a little bit more about it constantly, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's, you know, our understanding of it is ever evolving. So, um, yeah, I, I just really appreciate the opportunity to, oh. yeah, continue to expand my, my knowledge and understanding of
0: it. You're welcome. You're welcome. Pleasure. All right. So now, now, Chad is the, is the time in our episode where we uh, build in the uh, go for it, right? And uh, you ready? I don't know. I don't know. I'm buckling up right now because
3: I just wonder, and this is my biggest fear in all of this is that there's so many good things happening and there's so many awesome opportunities that we have. Like Sally said, it's an exciting, exciting time. We can, we can build these opportunities for our students to collaborate online. The, the online environment kind of almost silos them into, not silos, that's a bad word, but puts them in these situations where you can build group projects almost, I find easier than it was in a face-to-face environment because they're forced to be in these Zoom breakout rooms or whatever LMS you might be using. But then I keep hearing like so many discussions I've had with other trades instructors where they just can't wait to get back to the way it was and they miss the face-to-face and they, which I do too, but I think they, what they're saying is they want to go back to the way it was before. And so I, I think I'm of, of the opinion that it's not going to, if it's changed. Education has changed, but I think there's going to be a big push to try to get it back to the way it was because it worked right the people are passing those red seal exams. So why should we try to create, do all this work for authentic assessments? It's not easy. So why should we bother with that? And then to drop one last grenade and then I'll, I'll stop is <laughs> me, we, um, Trades education, and I don't like to use trades training anymore, but trades education is 20% in the classroom and 80% in industry, right? Yeah. So what are we doing in industry to help with the assessment and with authentic assessments? And can we not be using industry as well to to show this? Can we not be building things like e-portfolios where students can actually Mm -hmm. take pictures and videos of the work that they've done and put that towards a capstone or some sort of proof of, of, not proof of life. I've been watching way too many Netflix movies. <laughs> proof of um <laughs> a demonstration of knowledge, right? So there's yeah. like there's so much that we can be doing in industry. And it is eighty percent of their education is in industry. So shouldn't yeah. we instead of just tossing them out there and let's talk we can talk about the the logbook that we all had that didn't work. So again, this is Mike Smith speaking. If the IT is listening, (laughs) (laughs) I just think we have so much opportunity there. And with the tools that we have now, like we've talked about before, Sally, with all these different tools that we can create, e portfolios would be an awesome opportunity where we can integrate our actual trades education from school into industry education as well.
2: And I think the bit that you're really saying, like, you know, it will go back to in some classrooms, it will go back to the way it was. Unless we provide the building blocks for the instructors. Yeah. So instructors that took the PIDP, I don't know, like, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, maybe longer ago, and haven't had those opportunities for professional development outside of their trade. So they may have gone to trade shows, they may be focusing on there, but not as an educator, like, you know, perceiving yourself as an educator Mm -hmm. and looking at these opportunities. I mean, I think in the 21st century, you know, when we're looking at things like e-portfolios, it's so obvious. How can we deprive, um, you know, trade students from building an e-portfolio which captures their whole professional journey, their learning journey and their professional journey? So I think there are so many opportunities. I think as, you know, like Jesse just said, having these conversations, I mean, every time we have these conversations, I leave with more questions you know, as the week progresses afterwards. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, Oh, I need to know so much more here, but how do we mobilize this now? Like we've, COVID has allowed us to mobilize a lot of initiatives that have, we've been thinking about for a long time,
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: but how do we make that? How do we, you know, how do we reach out? How do we go further than,
3: the four of us. <laughs> well, I think it's like you're saying, so like if we can create systems and it's going back to like, if you're going to business school, they talk about how you should always build your business to be franchisable. So you should always have systems in place so that it can be repeatable. So for those of us who are creating authentic assessments, can we build templates for other instructors who are not savvy that way to follow or mm-hmm. even give them the whole assessment so that once they start using it, they can start tweaking it or start getting ideas themselves. So, but just oh, letting them know that yeah. they're out there. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: I like that idea.
0: I, I, I'm I, going to get on the soapbox a bit too, because I think it's, it, it's, it's systematic, right? We can't just pick one piece out and, and attack that and then check that box off and go to another piece in the system and check that box off. Although that's a very practical and pragmatic way to go. There has to be some methodology that includes higher level discussions as well as grassroots discussions. Mm-hmm. And, Uh, and I'll touch on a few things here. So the e-portfolios, they've been around forever. We just haven't called them e-portfolios. We used to call them resumes, right? And people would put in pictures of what they've actually done in their resume to prove to their prospective employer that, Hey, you know what? I built these homes. I worked for this place and I, and I did this, or I worked on these systems and, and, you know, we took pictures because we were proud of what we did and we weren't afraid to show those pictures. And then as social media came on, we started putting those out there more and more. And now you go into Instagram, like I, I think of a few big guys on Instagram that I follow. Uh, they've been doing it for five, six years. They've, they've got a, a plethora of, of information that they've done and, and um, archives that they can show people that they've done. And, and it's amazing. So I, I just, I can't believe that when, when this whole COVID thing started and I actually brought up the idea of e-portfolios, nobody laughed out loud but there was tons of silence because and then i'm like okay so that that must be people going what like what are you talking about e-portfolios how does that even and, and all that stuff right um and then and then the whole pid thing it's great i i think it's a great step i think it's very needed um i i i am totally convinced that this is a career change it's not a retirement job it, it, you have to you have to change what you do to be really good at what this craft is asking you to do, and if you're looking at this as a retirement package, get out because you know um, it, it's it's there's just so much more to it than that, right? And 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 you can you can continue to learn as a tradesperson, even if if that's even the right word, because that's even diminishing it. There's so much more that I've learned as a tradesperson, being in education, right? Um, yeah. And and that's interacting mm-hmm. with my apprentices and saying what you you you're putting in three inch uh, uh, plastic now I mean when I was in in the world that was unheard of like the, the largest plastic pipe that we were putting in was one inch right and even at that point we were laughing going one inch pipe it's never gonna hold well now they're putting in three and four inch <laughs> right and and that's because of changes in industry due to technology and cost right and so and I wouldn't have learned that. Uh, unless I was in the world, but you know, I'm I'm open to that in, in in this new world that I'm in. So, the PID thing is a great is a great starting point. It needs to be built on. Uh, it, there needs to be continuing education. Like I know in some states in the United States of America, they have a requirement for their tradespeople to go back to school to continue their education to to learn new new theories or new techniques or new materials. Why are we not asking that of our tradespeople? Why are we not asking that of our trades faculty? And and it's always bugged me that we go to a conference and, and we learn about you know this this kind of material or we learn about this new this 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 new building model and or you know zero net buildings is before it was you know uh, making sure that we we were uh, rainproofing our our condos. Well, that's all that's all fine and dandy. That's great. But what am I going to do to learn how to teach this stuff? Right. Mm-hmm. Who's going to show me how to break this down? Uh, from its larger big piece that I've got all these pamphlets for, but how am I going to break it down and to fit into my learning outcomes? And how am I going to look at this pedagogically? And and you know, I, I'm 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 even now of this mindset of saying I'm not afraid to say pedagogy in, in the trades world anymore. Like you guys have to embrace this. We have to begin to understand that there's there's an education side We're to this. We're
2: all out of the closet oh, look <laughs> out. See, he told
0: you, to buckle up. You know? But, you know, it's it's just. It's just this idea of, you know, why are we so afraid to talk about the educational side of it? And here's why here, here's why I think is the real danger in talking about the education side of what we do, because we're too afraid to be judged by our peers that out in the world, we we were judged by what we could do. Right. And now we come into an education world and we're still fearful that people will judge us based on what we do. Right. And, and, and what I've seen over the, the years in my, in my plus decade of, of being in education is that as people begin to get more experience, they, they soon realize it, it that, that does has, that has no effect of what I do in the classroom. So I'm, I'm not afraid of what people think of, of what I'm doing anymore. Right. Um, and so there's, there's either, there's either a resignment in that, or there's, a, a renewed energy in that. And once people figure out that, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what that one or two person thinks in your department of what you're doing. That's not what you're doing it for. You're doing it for your apprentice. You're doing it for the system. You're doing it for yourself. You're doing it for your trade. You're doing it for those, those contractors out there who want people who can just do more than the, the hands on stuff. Right. Um, okay, okay. I you.
2: think yeah. though um, Tim you mentioned there you go to the trade show you learn about these new skills you need you learn about these the, you know new materials what, whatever it is you come back as an educator now how do you go about putting you know applying that into your teaching what are you supposed to do with it you, you don't know that again it comes to the, that back to that curriculum piece and this is where you need your trade specific, curriculum developer. And I think this builds into the whole big picture. Because that person doesn't exist in the trades faculties all across BC, although I happen to know VCC have just hired a trade-specific um, curriculum developer. The, the <laughs> fact that that person is missing is implies a lot. So if we actually create those positions, those opportunities, it also implies a lot. It implies that this person is there to support you with your curriculum development. And I think that in itself actually shifts that perception that you're talking about, that we are tradespeople, but now you're transitioning into an educator when you come into the system. So I think it's almost, you know, we have to set We have to set the scene rather than, you know, hiring people that leave a trade on a Friday evening at five o'clock and start in the classroom at 7.30 on a Monday morning wearing an educator hat. And yet I'm not sure what happened on the... Saturday and Sunday, right? <laughs> because what we're saying is we've hired you because you are a very skilled tradesperson, and obviously that is at the core of it. But now we want you to grow into a very skilled educator as well. And and like you say, the PIDP is the first step. But then what are we offering? So I think that's it. We need to fill that. We need to fill that void.
1: Yeah, and it's. I mean over my last five years at at VIU and my role as associate dean it's uh and i mean sally have have had lots of conversations around this about how do we accomplish this like nothing this shift isn't going to happen overnight um you know this really it's a shift in mindset um and i think you know what we've tried to do is just provide those opportunities uh and eventually what happens is you you get some people that will become champions Um, and then you you continue to provide those champions further opportunities. Uh, and eventually what happens is the the community of practice starts to grow. Um, and we're finding that through COVID now, like all of a sudden, you know, that we're really noticing a big shift, um, where, where there are other people talking about pedagogy in our, in our faculty and it's growing and it's growing quickly and, and what's happened again, it was just, you got to continually provide those opportunities. And, and really let the, the, let the champions be champions and, and and momentum starts starts to build and then from there it's it's conversations like this of okay well how do you, how do you continue to support that how do you how do you allow this this community to, con, to continue to grow um, so yeah it, it's not going to happen overnight right it, it takes a long time to, to, to have the shift.
2: We had 19 trades instructors over the last two weeks attend these intensive one week workshops on adapting your course for the online environment. And, you know, the first week, the, the feedback we got from these instructors were going, How come we've never had this opportunity of a course like this before? One instructor said, How come these are not mandatory? Like, I've learned so much. And then the, the second week, You know, people going, well, we need to carry on this. Like For the first time, they had got to work with other faculty members from totally different trades programs. And we've got our HEO department now that work off-site anyway. They are now collaborating with horticulture because they both use the same, they both have the same curriculum needs for soil sampling or whatever, but they never knew about it until they took this workshop. So, yeah, there's loads of opportunities. But I think we as educators and obviously closet pedagogues, we actually are seeing how we can provide the opportunities. Because let's be honest, until you know, until you're sort of here people don't know what to ask for. So they can't actually say, oh, I would like to take a workshop that focuses on this. It's like you have to provide it, build it, and they will come. And we know what needs to be built, or we have ideas, we have many ideas, and we need to, I really like your idea of the systems thinking. And Tim, you mentioned this the other week when we spoke about backwards mapping design of curriculum. And you said this is design thinking. And I think that if we use that framework and actually focus on the big ideas and then put it into these very accessible templates that are transferable. Yep. I think that's, you know, I really like that idea of an approach.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm more and more convinced that what you guys have been doing and what you're talking about is is a is is a is a piece of design thinking. Um, especially the the prototype test iterate review piece of design thinking um the the first couple pieces of design thinking is is empathize empathize and interpret and 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 we've done that we're like we're feeling the pressure we're feeling the we're we're in that emotionally not just cognitively and in the interpreting the pieces we're here like people are are i think that's one of the big struggles and the tensions of all this is that we're trying to interpret how trades can respond to this, right? And we're not alone in that. I mean, there's STEM people that are in the same the same boat that we're in. There's there's people in the business uh, school of businesses that are that are running into this issues too. So it's not systemic just for us in the trades. Although there is the practical piece that comes into play, and and that we're so used to, you know, grabbing a hammer or grabbing a screwdriver or grabbing a. a, a A soil cutter that we're just we're we're just so used to doing that, but now we can't. That that I think is the sticking point. But the whole design thinking piece, especially Jesse, when you talked about the the backwards design, it just it just fires up that whole that whole design thinking piece for me. And and I'm wondering out loud that we need to we need to again take this on a on a roadshow and make and make a workshop or two. To uh, to offer to tradespeople, and and that may be one other arena that we light fire to the field, right? So, you know, we have these conversations in a podcast. We have these conversations in our in our group discussions with our colleagues. We we, we Slack channels, whatever. Or we go to other we go to other workshops and stuff. But why why what's stopping us from doing a workshop for trades instructors that would hit on some of this stuff? Um, so that we can help them generate more questions when they leave.
2: I love it.
3: Speaking of leaving, (laughs) I I have to jump out because I've got a meeting at 8.30 that I got to I was supposed to be prepping for, but
2: <laughs> I might think you're just gonna, today. Yeah. Just gonna wing
3: it, so <laughs> nice. good luck
2: with that, Chad. Really? I mean Thank you. Mike. All right. Smith. Mike,
3: so this is Mike Smith from an undisclosed college signing off.
0: <laughs> 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 right.
3: Well let's just Thank take this you. up.
0: Yeah. We'll just we'll just cut it here. How about that? Awesome. See you. <laughs> nice.
3: See you guys. Check.